Since you enjoy this show, I thought I'd throw out there another podcast you might like. It's a show about the intersection of design, technology, and the creative process. It's the Design Better podcast. And in each episode, hosts Eli Woolery and Aaron Walter bring you conversations with inspiring creative thinkers like John Cleese and David Sedaris, people who bring design and technology together like Tony Fadal, co-inventor of the iPhone and the iPod. So far, some standout episodes for me have been when they talk to John Cleese of Monty Python about creativity. That is one of my favorite topics and one of my favorite people. Then also one of my favorite musicians, Tycho, about his creative process. And they talk with Seth Godin about how creativity is an act of generosity. I've always been fascinated by design, the creativity behind it, the implementation of it, both to improve our lives from a functionality and user interface standpoint, also from an artful bringing beauty into the world approach. So whether you're a design curious person like me or a design pro, Design Better is a great listen that inspires and informs. Subscribe to the Design Better podcast at designbetterpodcast.com or in your favorite podcast app like the one you're using right now. Hello, and welcome back to another episode of Beyond the To-Do List. This is the show where we talk to the people behind the productivity. I'm your host, Eric Fisher. This week, I'm talking with Joshua Becker of Becoming Minimalist. Joshua has been talking about becoming minimalist for a long time at becomingminimalist.com. I just knew that I had to have him come on the show to talk about his new book, The More of Less. Finding the Life You Want Under Everything You Own. If you're unfamiliar with minimalism, it can feel like it's this new thing that you've got to follow, like a religion, where you just have to get rid of your stuff, and that will hopefully make you happy. That's not it at all. And in fact, Joshua is here to clear up some of the misconceptions of what minimalism isn't, and then talk about what it actually is, and how it can help you become more productive. Before we get to that conversation, I want to say thank you to you, a Noodle Mix podcast listener. Three of the Noodle Mix podcasts have become finalists for the 11th Annual Podcast Awards, The Productive Woman by my friend Laura McClellan, The Audacity to Podcast by Daniel J. Lewis, and the Once Once Upon a Time Fan Podcast Thank you so much to you Noodle MX listeners for nominating those shows. Now is the time to vote. We as a network would really appreciate it if you'd head on over to noodle.mx slash podcast awards. There you can find out exactly what you can do, how to vote as often as you need to, get daily reminders to do so, all that fun stuff. Again, that's noodle.mx slash podcast awards. Congratulations to the other shows on the network. And thank you for being an awesome listener. This week, it is my privilege to welcome to the show Joshua Becker. Joshua, welcome to the show. Well, thank you for having me, Eric. It is a pleasure. So you are somebody who has been name-dropped on the show since the very beginning, but have never been on the show, and this is the right time to do that. Your new book, The More of Less, is honestly like a, a concise boiling down of 
pretty much everything you've you've thought of or done or I don't know if that's even the right way to put it, but basically it's it's the thing you just began you began writing about this kind of what eight year process of discovering minimalism, assimilating it into what it meant for you and what that really means. So actually you, you probably described it pretty well. <laughs> uh, I've been, uh, I've been writing about minimalism for eight years and, and all the different angles that, that come from it and, um, have done a, a lot of speaking and interviews and, and conversations and, and over eight years, a couple of things happen. You know, I think you're just the maturity of thought that, that goes into it begins to deepen. You begin to hear some of the questions that people have, uh, some of the hangups that, that people have. Eight years is enough to see how it's influenced my life over a long term, not just a, a short window in my life. And so uh, I'm kind of thankful that I was able to write this book eight, eight years after, after writing about it because I think it encapsulates a lot of those themes that, that I've discovered over, um, over my life during that time. So as with any ism, there's a lot of different perspectives on what it is. So let's start with what the consensus of what minimalism is and what it isn't and maybe talk about what are the misconceptions about it. And then let's really dive into what does that, but what does it mean to you? What's your definition? Yeah. So I think on the surface, minimalism, at least in, as we, as we're talking about living life, you certainly find minimalist in art and architecture and music. And uh, there's some similarities where, you know, minimalist art, they're trying to communicate um, what they want to communicate using the least amount of resources or, or building using the least amount of resources. Uh, minimalism, a lifestyle on the very surface is simply this, this desire to own less stuff, that there's more joy to be found in owning less than we can ever find in pursuing more. So it starts there. And for me, it, it was, I was standing in my driveway, actually, when the first time I was ever introduced to it, um, I was in my early 30s. I had a five-year-old son who was playing in the backyard. I had spent all morning cleaning out my garage. Uh, my neighbor, I struck up a conversation with and just did a little complaining uh, about all the, the time and effort I'd put into it. And she introduced me to the term. She she said, you know, that's why my daughter's a minimalist. She keeps telling me I don't need to own all this stuff. And I remember looking at the pile of things in my driveway and out of the corner of my eye, noticing my five-year-old son still swinging alone in the backyard and just had this realization that everything I owned wasn't making me happy, but even worse, everything I owned was actually taking me away from the very things that did bring me happiness and joy and, and purpose in life. So that was the, the catalyst for us to say, you know, maybe this constant pursuing of more isn't all it's cracked up to be, and, and maybe owning less and freeing up resources for more important things is a better way to live. So what I hear you saying is it's not just about this sterile feel of like, spaces we live in where we have less furniture and stuff. It's not just about our having less stuff. It's about having the right priorities. Yeah, I think that's it. Very well stated. Actually, I should have put that in the book. <laughs> Great. <laughs> you know, I think on the, at, the, at first, you know, someone would hear minimalism and their thought is, oh gosh, you just sit in an empty room by yourself. You know, there's nothing around you. What a, what a boring way to, to live. Um, but I don't think it takes too long or too much explanation for someone to move past their first preconceived misconceptions and, and be like, well, okay, obviously you're going to own something, right? Ultimately, minimalism isn't 
isn't necessarily what we remove from our life. It's what's we're able, it's what we're able to add to our life instead. Um, because I'm not spending all my time taking care of things, because I'm not spending all my money constantly buying more and more stuff, um, because my my life isn't focused on can't wait to get the bigger house and the nicer car and the bigger screen television. Um, I'm able to focus on on the on the more important things that that really bring me. Uh, really bring me joy in life. And those look very different for different people. You know, some people love travel and and some people uh, just want to get out of debt and some people can't wait to quit their job. Um, And so it looks very different for different people, what goals they're pursuing, which then, of course, affects how they get there. But ultimately, it's about pursuing greater passions. Interesting. So it's not it's not just killing the clutter. It's analyzing the needs of of our life and even having a, a proper perspective on our needs versus our wants. Yeah. And as I put in the book, I, I think it's a, it's a both. And I, I think there's a moment where we're either we're, we're sick and tired of the, the clutter or we, we just take a step back and, and we say, what in the world am I doing with my life? Um, what am I accumulating with my life here? And then as we, as we remove things, I found that it, that it forced me to ask deeper questions of my life. And actually it was a, it was a comment on the blog that kind of opened my eyes to this. I would just spend a day, I think going through my closet, getting rid of clothes. And, and I just was writing about it online and I, I talked how, how emotional it was or how difficult it was, um, how more difficult it was than I thought it was going to be uh, to get rid of these things. And uh, a guy named Dustin, actually, I remember to this day, he left the comment and he said, it seems to me that minimalism would force questions of values onto your life. And I said, that is it exactly. That is what I'm being forced to do. Merely organizing things, right? Finding better storage solutions for the stuff we already have doesn't, doesn't force those questions. But when we uh, begin removing stuff and asking, what do I really need? And, and what have I just been told that I need? That's when those deeper heart questions of value really start to surface. One of the things that I actually really liked about the book was the fact that you go through not only all these different stories, but you at one point set up the and give context to all the different generations, you know, the uh, let's see. Currently, it's millennials. Pre- previously, it was Generation X, and then the baby boomers, working our way backwards. And how each of our different generations have approached their relationship with consumerism, or consuming, or just stuff, I guess, in a different way, and how that's kind of changed over time. It's it's pretty interesting how we as humans have been all psychologically, emotionally, physically, and even spiritually wrapped up in our stuff. And that sprang from um, the fact when I when I started to go speak on this topic and um, we would have a you know open community wide event. And uh, the first several I was shocked at how many older people were coming to, to something that seemed like Hey, this sounds great if you're in your 20s and you're a single guy and you can travel the world. Like that makes sense. But 60, 70, 80 year old people were were coming, and a lot of them, you could see the. I, I think I don't know if inner turmoil is the word, but you could see the struggle that they were having, where they knew they needed to downsize. They'd been in their homes for 30 or 40 years, sometimes for physical reasons or financial reasons. They knew they had to to 
to part with their possessions and they were just struggling with it. And part of this is because they grew up in a generation where they were taught to value things like we aren't today. And, and they were, uh, they learned to hold on to things and use them up and wear them out and fix them. But now of course, you know, the, they're just at a, a certain age where we're doing that doesn't, doesn't work anymore. Also where, where goods are far more accessible today than they ever were before and, and helping that generation work through it. And then you start looking at baby boomers that are beginning to retire and generation X, my generation who's, uh, we're raising children with baby boomer parents who constantly give us more and more stuff. And we're all feeling a little bit overwhelmed with everything. And, uh, certainly the millennial generation seems to be the most, uh, the most minimal of, of any generation in, in modern history. So it's just very interesting how, how your generation does affect your uh, attachment to things. And also I think has brought the country to a point where, where this resonates and this idea of owning less is attractive to them for all the same reasons. I am definitely on the tail end of Generation X, so I am, I am in that boat for sure. And I've seen it, actually, with, with my grandmother as she moved into uh, moved out of the home that she'd been in for, well, at least the whole time I had ever known her. So that was strange. In fact, that was actually one of those things where it's like, oh my gosh, Grandma's house is now not Grandma's house anymore. And what does that mean now? Like, you know what I mean? Like, it's that, it's that clinging to certainty and security in a sense that uh, definitely springs emotional and psychological things, uh, uh, feelings and thoughts when it comes to a physical space. It's so strange. Yeah, you, you don't have that quite so much anymore, you know, where, where someone's staying in the, in the same space for that long a time as, as generations used to. We are, uh, we're far more mobile than we ever were before. It's, it's not uncommon to move several times in life and switch careers several times in life. And so we're certainly living in a, a different day and age where uh, mobility has become the new stability or, or something like yeah. that. You know, where, where, uh, where previous generations used to, used to crave the, the stability of being in one place for a while. Um, now, you know, it's, it's the ability to move and to, to get about and, and to see different things is, um, is what people crave far more today. Yeah. It, it's very interesting. I think ultimately what we're getting at here is, uh, there's, there's a lot of different ways to, to paint this in, in metaphorical language it's it's almost as if that the aspect of getting rid of the stuff isn't about getting rid of the stuff itself. It's getting rid of the stuff that you don't need to hang on to because it serves no purpose. So the metaphor here is, say I'm a person who needs to lose weight. Well, it's not lose weight. I mean, you could lose weight just for the appearance of it. And again, that translates over into having less stuff in your, your area that you live in or or whatever looks nicer. But it's also about what you can do when you don't have that extra weight, that mental weight, that emotional weight, that physical weight is the metaphor I'm going for, you now can suddenly get up and move around and accomplish more and do the right things. Do you follow? Yeah, absolutely. Um, the definition of minimalism that I use in the book is minimalism is the intentional promotion of the things we most value and the removal of anything that distracts us from it. Um, or in, in your analogy, not just the things that distract us from it, but the things that, that keep us from it. Mm. The New York Times just ran an article last fall um, where they referred to the, the current American generation as the, the most hurried, stressed, busied, tired generation of all time. 
there's truth to that that fact certainly but when you begin to consider the fact that we own more stuff than we've ever owned before that our our homes are three times the size that they were 50 years ago 10% of us still rent offsite storage our homes are bigger our families are smaller uh, the average American home has more televisions than people and has 300,000 items in it, um, the LA Times reported um, a couple of years ago, that, uh, that removing, those, removing those possessions frees up time, right? It's just less stuff to clean and organize and manage and maintain. It, it frees up money. I'm, I'm buying less and I'm taking care of less and so I have more money available uh, I have more energy because I'm I'm spending less energy taking care of things. I have less stress, less worry, more freedom. Right, just like losing weight physically uh, allows us to to do what we want to do with our body. Getting rid of the excess possessions from our home and from our life uh, frees up our lives to pursue the things that that we want to be pursuing. Still searching for a great candidate for your company? Don't search, just match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch that busy work. Instead, use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. I wish I had Indeed when I was in the hiring process in roles in the past because it is a slow, arduous headache of a process to find the right people or at least it used to be, join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to find and hire great talent fast. In fact, in the minute I've been talking to you, 23 hires were made on Indeed, according to Indeed data worldwide. And listeners of the show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash to-do list. Just go to Indeed.com slash to-do list right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash to-do list. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. What's something that works so well, it basically feels like magic. For me, I'm thinking air conditioning, noise-canceling headphones, definitely. Meeting-free Fridays. What about selling with Shopify? Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your own shop stage to the first real store stage, you don't have to just sell your own stuff anymore. With Shopify Collective, you can curate products to sell from brands you love and give your customers more variety and your business more sales. Shopify is your no excuses business partner. Sell without needing to code or design. Just bring your best ideas and Shopify will help you open up shop. Shopify also helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout 36 percent better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms and sell more with less effort thanks to shopify magic your ai powered all-star sign up for a one dollar per month trial period at shopify.com slash beyond again go to shopify.com slash beyond now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in shopify.com slash beyond you shared so many different stories about this. What are some of the ones that really stick out to you that just seem almost maybe ridiculous that then then it, it borders on it starts off as ridiculous but then stumbles into maybe an epiphany, you know? Actually there's two that I that I couldn't wait to put in the book. I tell the story of Anthony and Amy Angaro. I heard his story at a, a Simple Living conference in Minneapolis, and he shared about they were both working and they didn't have any kids, and uh, yet they seemed like they couldn't ever quite get ahead financially. And 
And one evening, he just happens to go on to Amazon because he was trying to find a product that he bought a couple of years ago because he wanted the same one or he was going to recommend it to somebody. And so he pulled his Amazon account history from the last six years. And uh, he said, I, I opened it up and I couldn't believe how long the report was. And I couldn't believe the total amount of money that I had spent on Amazon and he said most of them were small things, $20, $30, $40 items. But when you're buying that many $20 or $30, $40 items, it adds up really quickly. And I thought it was a, just a very good picture of how unintentional I think we become in our consumerism, that, uh, that we do just get in this pattern of buying and buying because we're told to or something looks attractive in the moment. And we don't even realize until we look back how much how much time and money we've we've wasted on it so that was a very powerful story that, that I couldn't wait to to get in the book cuz i think the visual is so so spot on for so many of us i have to identify with that one completely by the way i remember that story and i just think oh my gosh yeah like how many times do you think, oh, yeah, let me just go grab that on Amazon as we've b- become accustomed to whatever generation we're part of, to be honest. And the fact that it adds up so quickly and you don't realize that you've got this small, unintentional leak that can rob you of so much of your time and attention and energy, all those resources, and what could you have done with those instead? I don't know why it's hard for us to make the connection, but I mean, I spent most of my life not making the connection. I'd had several pay increases over the years and was never able to get ahead financially. And yet you always assume, right? Well, the next pay increase finally will be able to get ahead. We'll finally be able to get out of debt. And then for some reason, you're not able to do it. And like, I don't know what happened. I don't know where, I don't know where the money went, right? That unintentional leak is such a, uh, such a good way to, uh, to describe it. I should have put that in the book as well. Man, Man you're, I, I should well, have talked to you years ago. <laughs> I'm recording this if you want to put it in the next book. So <laughs> how familiar are you with this whole concept of uh, Inbox Zero? Yeah, I mean, I know the idea. Yeah. I, so, so the guy that coined the term Merlin Man, what he created it as was – not that you would have zero things, zero zero items in your inbox. It's that you would have the right relationship with your inbox, that the, the percentage of your attention that was on your inbox when you weren't in your inbox was zero. And so that this just totally rang true uh, as I was reading the book. I just kept coming back. I was like, oh, this is like inbox zero. It's like, well, the real inbox zero, I should say. It's, it's not about having zero things. It's about having the right things, the right attention, the right time, the right amount of energy, the right... Um, and what's your definition again? Say that again, your definite, your personal definition. You got uh, the intentional promotion of the things I most value and the removal of anything that is distracting me from it. Okay. See, it, this is just ringing true with some of the other recent episodes that I've either put out or recorded where it just keeps coming back to priorities on a macro level and then using that as a guide down to the micro level in terms of life planning and what specifically you put on your to-do lists because of your values and your priorities. You know, there's the the, the piece of 
decluttering, right? I mean, there's the piece of, of going through and getting rid of old sweaters and getting rid of old coats and getting rid of old toys and, and things in the garage. Um, but I, I think that the, like the greatest benefit of minimalism or the, the greatest joy of this comes not just when somebody owns less, but when they, they want less, right? When the, when the desire becomes... I, I want to own less. I, I like to say owning less is great, but wanting less is even better. That once we remove this pursuit of conspicuous consumption and, and constant consumerism, that, that that's when life really opens up. And that's when, when work starts to take on a different meaning, right? So much today work is um, all about the, the paycheck, right? I work so I can get the paycheck, so I can buy the house, so I can buy the car, or I can retire early, but when some of that stuff is is taken out of, then suddenly I, I start to rethink work. Well, okay, I, the goal isn't to get out of work. I mean, I find fulfillment in work. But if the goal isn't I'm working just to make as much money as I can so I can buy as much stuff as I can, suddenly work becomes, hey, how, how can I do my job in a way that benefits other people? You know, how how can I see work as a as a selfless act rather than a selfish act? Right, like it begins to really change the entire way we view the world and and the lives that we're living and why we're doing the things that we're doing. The other key thing that I think that you're sparking in my mind is the fact that I've talked to some people before and know that even some of the listeners here are people who are in that entrepreneurial online kind of career move or want to be. And Somebody once shared this idea that you don't have to make millions, you just need to make a living. And you can make a good living if you decide or if you come to the realization that meeting your needs instead of your wants is very is much more satisfying and that not living above your means and if we reassign or reassess what our means really are, <coughs> you know, then suddenly it's like, well wait a second, now that I'm not Again, now that I'm not spending $10,000 on Amazon in four years by accident, suddenly I can afford to become more towards the thing that I want to be or want to do with my life that is fulfilling in my work. So we, uh, I spoke at South by Southwest um, down in Austin several years ago, and the, the topic was how minimalism is changing entrepreneurship. And the, the whole basis of the conversation was – the thing that keeps most people from pursuing their entrepreneurial dreams is the fear of money, right? If, if we knew we were going to make a mo- enough money doing whatever we wanted to be doing instead, then the most of us would go and do it. And so what minimalism did for me, I, I was actually a pastor before I'm, I'm doing what I'm doing now. But what I found was as I found minimalism and started owning less and started enjoying owning less, we, we moved into a smaller house. Uh, we cut down on all these expenses, not because I couldn't wait to cut down on expenses. We cut down on expenses because the, the thrill of, of, of buying stuff was just lost on me. When I transitioned into writing full-time, which was, uh, which was two and a half years ago, I'll, I'll share these numbers. I'm, I'm not sure I've shared them anywhere else, but I, uh, I think I have. Um, we had we had gotten our lifestyle down to a point where uh, we were a family of four uh, living in a, a three bedroom house um, on the outskirts of Phoenix, and when we did our math, our our total need was about four thousand dollars a month. That uh, that that would be enough for us to 
to live. And so we were able to look at, okay, how much do we have saved? How much have we had saved over the years? How, how much am I making writing now? What would need to happen in order for this to, in order for this to change? Too many people, I think, get, you know, they're, they're in the job where they're making 70 or 80,000 a year. And they're like, how am I ever going to get a job where I, you know, how am I ever going to get my side business to the point where I'm making 70 or 80,000? And, um, and I don't think they need to, right? I, cause I, I don't, I don't think the, the life they're, they're living of just accumulating things at that rate is contributing to their happiness anyway. They'd be far happier owning less doing something that they love and doing something that they believe in. Yeah, that's exactly right. I, I just, I feel like that is one of those things where, because we've not thought through the process of what it is that we've always done in relation to our stuff. And by stuff, I just mean, I don't know, not just our possessions, but our actions even, like the way we spend our money, the, t- the way we spend our time. And we can say, well, it's not going to work because, and, and the reasons that they give are legitimate, but they're faulty if they take a look at what it really means or really, really requires for them to make that change for what they really, really want. Maya Angelou um, said, we need so much less than we think we need, uh, which I think is, is such a true statement. And there's a, there's a whole chapter in the book on the, the value of experimenting with, with less. And I offer a number of different ways that, that you can do it. But um, the only way to, to really determine what we need in life whether it's possessions or the the schedule that we're keeping, or I suppose even the the relationships that we have in our lives, um, the only way to really determine what you what you need is to go for a period of time without it. How can you know how many sweaters you need to own until you actually experience a moment in time where you don't have enough? <laughs> most of us most of us live forever where we have too many sweaters in our closet, um, but as soon as you get to the point where where you're like, oh, you know what? I need one more. Like I, I tried living with with one sweater, and it's not enough. I need to have two. That that that's how we how we find that moment. Um, how we find that that Patrick Rohn talks about a, a tightrope, right? That we fluctuating between too much and too little. That that that's the only place we really find the the sweet spot. And the problem is that. So many of us have never even tried living with too little, whether it be the things that we own or where we eat or what we eat, how much money we spend on food, you know, um, how much money we spend on coffee, just challenging some of those assumptions and, and finding where, um, where the sweet spot really is. Those experiments, I mean, the, some of the ones that you share in the book are just, it's, it's almost like it's a, <laughs> it's like a life, it's like a CrossFit for your, for other parts of your life where it's like, all right, sign up for this for, 90 days to do this or that, or I want to give the listener something to walk away with here to try and maybe get a quick win that they'll be able to analyze and know they can do like do 10 days without such and such. I don't know. You know, Yeah. well, let me give you the one that uh, I, I always, I always think people should try because I, I, I think it just walks the perfect line of, of sounding challenging. And yet when you get into it, you find out it's not that difficult. So anyway, Courtney Carver, uh, I actually tell her story in the book. Uh, she came up with this experiment that she calls Project 333. Uh, she lived in Salt Lake City at the time, and her idea was that for three months, she was going to wear only 33 different articles of clothing. And that counted shoes and coat and jewelry and the whole thing. She made an exception for underwear and workout clothes, unfortunately. Um, 
But uh, she said, I'm just going to cut my closet down to 33 things, and I'm going to keep it that way for three months. And uh, the first time I heard it, I'm like, wow, that sounds hard. Like I had downsized my closet, but there were probably still 50 or 60 things hanging in there. And uh, finally one, one time I said, okay, I'm going to do it. Let's give it a try. And so I just took a look at my closet and I, I said, okay, which 33 things do I really like? I started pairing, okay, I, I need all my tops to match my bottoms and these shoes need to match and which accessories can I get rid of? And I did it for three months and I'm telling you, I was nervous at first, but I loved it. Like my life hasn't changed. My, my closet is still probably 35, 30 to 35 different things because I, I found so much freedom in having a closet where everything I loved, where everything in it was something that I loved and I could wear anything on any given day. And I, I think it's a great experiment for, um, for people to try. And some guys are like, I don't even think I have 33 things already. <laughs> and some women are like, yeah, but he's a guy that's easy. And I would say, oh, no, this was, this was a lady who, who came up with the idea. And other people say, yeah, but I got winter. And I'm like, she did it through the winter. So, you know, there's, there's opportunities to do it. And, and oftentimes people love it far more than they think they're going to. And they find it easier to do than they think as well. As a guy, I'm thinking, well, I've got this pair of jeans that I'm wearing most days anyway. So there's one, and that covers me for a lot of days. And then my T-shirts, I love just pick, pulling those out and like, yep, moving on. I already kind of did this without even thinking about it because I hate having to think about what it is I'm going to wear. And I try to eat the same thing for breakfast every day. So it's that whole decision fatigue. It's why Steve Jobs wore the black turtleneck is what I'm getting at. Yeah, and you know what? It doesn't surprise me. I mean, it doesn't surprise me that that you would have made those changes in your life because it because it is a like a very productivity hack isn't the right word to say, but it but it is right. I mean, people who you and a lot of your listeners who are, who are focused on you know productivity and and getting the most out of their day, like they've already made those changes. Um, I, I think of the, the person who, you know, listens and, and, and wants to be more productive and is, you know, really trying to find a way to, to get there. It's kind of just dipping their toe in it. Like this is a, a great way to, to test that out. Yeah. And, and not only again, and this is one of those, those things where it's, it's multi-level in terms of its benefits. I mean, you've got the productivity benefit of it where you're spending less time figuring out what it is you're going to wear because you don't have as much you got to choose from. And then two, you're seeing that you can live with less and that it's not going to kill you. And then that benefit is, I mean, especially with clothes, Henry David Thoreau said, every generation laughs at the old fashions, but religiously follows the new. It's not so true, by the way. (laughs) That Um, is true. and uh, and and once I once I found my closet, like once I found my my wardrobe that this is who I am and this is what I wear, suddenly I could care less what the newest color scheme is for spring two thousand and sixteen. Like that, like I don't care. I, I don't care what the new fashions are, or what the new pants are that the fashion industry has told me that that I need to own. I I have my look and I have my style and I. I don't have to spend a lot of time shopping. I don't, ha- I don't feel like I have to keep up on all those things. I can focus on far more important things with my life, whatever I choose to define them as. Yeah. So maybe let's give an advanced tip or two here. For someone like me who's already thought about this idea of uh, you know, our clothing and we've, we've done that pairing back 
and we've learned that we don't need as much there. What's maybe a next level higher test that you could do? What's another experiment that somebody can try uh, if they've already they if they're already saying, well, the clothes thing is easy. I can do that. I've already done that. Maybe what's a what's the next experiment? I'm going to go maybe a, a very different direction than than you thought I was going to go. Uh, but I'll preface it with, I think that, that if you uh, take a look at your life and, and ask this question, uh, what is one thing that I couldn't possibly give up for the next two or three weeks? Challenge yourself in that area. Whatever, oh, I couldn't possibly give up coffee for a couple weeks. Try giving up coffee for a couple weeks. Oh, I couldn't possibly give up my, my internet usage. And maybe you couldn't give it up entirely, but maybe you could give up a lot of internet usage and, and find an experiment where you, where you cut it down. One of the things that I did um, actually over, um, uh, over an Easter season a couple of years ago was I, I felt I was very attached to my, to my phone, um, to my smartphone. And I, I said, for 40 days, I'm going to get rid of all the applications on my phone. I, I used it only for phone calls and texts. And it was a hassle. At first, I was like, printing out maps, and, you know, doing a, doing a lot of different things that I didn't have to do because I would normally use my phone, but it was just for a, a set period of time. And when the, when the period was over, I was able to say, okay, I, I really need my map application. I, I really need to be able to do this, but all these other things that I was doing on my phone, it just isn't necessary for me to do it. So that might be a, uh, that might be a challenge for people. But the one that I would um, when I when I think of advanced in terms of minimalism and and some of the the ways that this really starts to to spark a new life, uh, I would challenge people to find a a new level of generosity in their life, uh, whatever that looks like. If one of your listeners doesn't donate any money to charity at all, I would say for the next six months, donate. $20 a month or $50 a month or just $1 a month, right? Find a number and commit to a period of time for doing it. Uh, because what, what often happens is, let's say you choose you know, $20 a month that you're going to start giving to a, a charity, something that you believe in. What you find after about three months of giving $20 is that you're just fine, that, that you're still paying the mortgage, you still have clothes in your closet, you're still eating, and, and then you can say, okay, what about $50 a month? Could I give $50 a month? And again, you usually find I'm still eating, I'm still able to have a good time, and there's a, a new joy that comes from solving a problem, from supporting something that, that I believe in. Um, and we start to see that, that some of the greatest joy in life is not found in selfishly hoarding everything to ourselves, but in selflessly giving of ourselves to others. Yeah, that's a really that's a really good point there. And in fact, I feel like this is a good place to even mention the hope effect, something that you guys have been working on. Which, by the way, I did not mention that to speak about the hope effect. But I, I noticed, I but I brought it up on purpose. <laughs> you know, it actually um, spurred from the from the book, and I I don't know how long of a story to to share, but the the blog readership is quite quite large. We have about a, a million people a month that, that come to becomingminimalist.com. And when I was approached to write a book about it, they they gave me a pretty generous offer to to write the book. I was doing just fine. I, I, I was making what I needed online. I, I, I've never been the guy who said, let's, let's say, you know, let's, at least not anymore, let's save up to, to buy a bigger house or get a nicer, get a nicer car. And so we, 
uh, we took the the book advance money from from this book and we we started a nonprofit organization called the Hope Effect. We're online at hopeeffect.com and and we used all of our resources to to fund the administrative needs so that uh, 100% of donations could be used for orphan care is what we're doing. How's this for a big goal? We're trying to change how the world cares for orphans. So we're, <laughs> we're not messing around with uh with anything small, but the um uh, we've had the, the research for decades that the traditional models of orphanages where you have 30 to 40 kids and three or four adults, that it's actually quite harmful for children, uh, that they just don't get the interaction and attention that the children need for their brains to develop correctly. And um, so we have a new model that focuses on um, smaller housing units. Each one will house eight children and two parents. And in that way, uh, we're able to mimic the family in an orphan care community. So that's that's what we're doing. And actually, it's a, a direct result of uh, we're only doing it be, because of this book. Um, it provided the opportunity to, to start it. And we're, uh, we're building a home in Honduras right now and looking at a second location in Mexico already. That's so cool. I, I love the fact that you're doing that. And in fact, I'll put uh, the link to that in the show notes for this episode so people can can check that out. And again, I think it's one of those things where you don't even think the scale of impact that that's going to happen from that you just don't even imagine it because you think you know your your ho hum everyday average way of going about things and consuming and acting and and being is the way it always is but you're you you're really challenging us in in a, a great way to not overanalyze but analyze in an intentional way what we're doing with our time our attention our focus our money, our resources, our possessions, so that we can truly not just have a better life for ourselves, but even then make an impact and have give a better life to other people. I love that. Yeah, and I, you know, I, I put that story in the book about the uh, about the hope effect, which I assume is how you knew about it. Um, and I even use the line in the book, like I don't share this story because I I think I'm anything extraordinary. I, I share the story because I'm I'm just ordinary. Mm-hmm. Right, I'm, I'm. I was just your your pretty typical middle class American who who finally decided that um, that I didn't need to own all this stuff and and that I could find a better life with less and and suddenly all these resources were freed up to to do things and um, you know that this is something that that we decided to do with it and I never would have dreamt that this many resources would be freed up to do to do this much work. Um, man, I it's an important book and it's an important topic because I, I think so many people can will be shocked um, at what they're able to do, what they're able to produce or accomplish with their life um, once uh, once the just the accumulation and the pursuit of, of possessions can be removed. I wholeheartedly agree. I know that that's been something that I've struggled with in a lot of different areas and have been apparently successful in some ways already. So I'm moving forward with this. I think everybody needs to. Joshua, I know you've already said, you know, becomingminimalist.com is the place to go for your site, but let's tell other people, you know, where they can find you online and connect with you if they have any questions about this. I think that's it. Uh, becomingminimalist.com is the, is the place to go. Um, I'm on Twitter, Joshua underscore Becker. Um, you can find uh, Becoming Minimalist on, on Facebook. Uh, HopeEffect.com is the, the orphan care work that we're doing. Um, and the book is called The More of Less, Finding the Life You Want Under Everything You Own. Hopefully it should be available everywhere. Awesome. Joshua, thanks so much for joining us. 
Yeah, my pleasure. Thank you. Well, I hope this conversation has made you reconsider or reanalyze your approach to what it is you're doing with your resources, whether that's your stuff, your time, your energy, your focus, minimalism in general. I hope that you were enlightened, informed, entertained, educated. Thanks again for listening. Please consider going over to noodle.mx slash podcast awards to vote for the Noodle Mix Network podcasts that made it into the finalists for the 11th Annual Podcast Awards. That's noodle.mx slash podcast awards. Thanks again for being an awesome listener. Thanks again for being an awesome listener of this show. If this show helped you in any way, please show us a kindness. Head on over to iTunes at beyondthetodolist.com slash iTunes. Leave us a rating or a review. Thanks again for listening, and I will see you next episode. Beyond the To-Do List is a proud member of the Noodle Mix Network. Find more of our award-winning and award-nominated podcasts to make you think, laugh, and succeed at noodle.mx. Learn how to podcast, theorize over the TV shows Once Upon a Time, Once Upon a Time in Wonderland, and Under the Dome. Laugh with our clean comedy, delve into science fiction and philosophy, learn critical thinking from movie reviews, and more at noodle.mx. Hey, thanks for listening to the end. If you're looking for a show to start helping you apply these productivity lessons on your business, check out Millionaire University. It's real lessons from real entrepreneurs teaching you what you need to know to improve your business or start one if you've been putting it off. It covers all aspects of business from starting, marketing, growing, managing, and everything in between, wearing all the hats. And as an added bonus, I am conducting a number of those conversations, those interviews, so you'll fit right in. Again, that's Millionaire University. Just search for it in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're listening to this podcast.